Welcome to the 10th episode of Guardian Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm filmmaker and cyber-terrorist, guilty of virtually every computer crime we have a law for, Giles Goff. And I'm photographer and some of the remainder of an unbalanced equation, Phil Coleman. And during this lockdown, we'll be trying to hold off the desire to meet in groups of six by sticking on our film cyberpunk sunglasses to analyse the Matrix trilogy. Phil. Who's your favourite character from The Matrix? It's going to have to be Agent Smith. There's something quietly inhuman about him. Yeah. yeah. He's also sort of got a bit of a sick sense of humour as well. Every time I see Hugo Weaving in anything, I just think, Mr. Anderson! And I just, that's, <laughs> that's all I can think of in my head. It makes it even more confusing when he's Elrond in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, you know? I see him as Elrond, and I'm just kind of like, it's another simulation. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it always has to be Morpheus. He's cool, he's measured, he's zealous, he's unflappable. He has the kind of faith I want. He can appeal to people who have different beliefs to him, but there's nothing that changes his views and I just think he's so fantastic. He's just so staunch in his beliefs. That is admirable. Absolutely. Without further ado, let's hear Phil's facts. The Matrix is a 1999 science fiction action film written and directed by the Wachowskis. It stars Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Carrie Ann Moss, Hugo Weaving and Joe Pantoliano in the first instalment of the Matrix franchise. It depicts a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside a simulated reality, the Matrix, created by intelligent machines to distract humans whilst using their bodies as an energy source. When computer programmer Thomas Anderson, under the hacker alias of Neo, uncovers the truth, he is drawn into a rebellion against the machines, along with other people who have been freed from the Matrix. Legendary Hong Kong stunt coordinator Wu Ping Yuan initially refused to work on the film. Even after receiving the script, which he liked, he hoped that by asking for an exorbitant fee, it would turn off the Wachowskis. It didn't. He next <laughs> formulated what he considered an impossible request. He said that he'd agree only if he had complete control of the fight and that he trained the actors for four months before they shoot. <laughs> Naturally, the Wachowskis complied with his request. So that guy was doing everything he could. <laughs> to not work on the Matrix and they were just like yeah we're definitely having you we are <laughs> defo having you all the scenes that take place within the Matrix have a green tint as if mm. watching them through a computer monitor while scenes yeah. in the real world have a blue tint blue was also used at a minimum in the Matrix scenes since the directors thought blue was more of a real world colour despite ironically blue being the least often occurring colour in nature I did not know that I didn't either until I looked that up to be fair also mm. as well any time that they're in the construct or in any training program or anything like that, mm -hmm. it's tinted yellow because okay. it is neither the Matrix nor the real world. Right, okay. Interesting stylistic choices there, I think. Mm. After the lobby shootout, the camera pans back showing the aftermath of the gunfight in the lobby. During this, a piece of one of the pillars falls off. This happened by coincidence during the filming. It was not planned, but was left because it seemed appropriate. <laughs> According to costume designer Kim Barrett, Trinity's costume was made with cheap PVC because of the much tighter budget. Similarly, Neo's coat wasn't actually
obviously a very expensive fabric. It was a wool blend purchased for $3 a yard. So that means you could get a wool blend for $3 a yard, Giles, <laughs> patron saint of jackets, and make your own. Good to know. When Neo gets in the car with Trinity for the first time, Switch refers to him as Copper Top. Copper Top is a slang mm. for the Duracell battery, which is the battery Morpheus shows to Neo as he explains how the human race became an energy source. Oh, brilliant. I was wondering about that. Matt. I never understood that line until I read yeah. that and I was like... Phew! Mind blown. Because <laughs> you just spend your time thinking, but he's not ginger, though. Not by Yeah, that's what I magic. thought. Yeah, he's like, but he's, he's not got red hair. Mm, Don't make a blind that, bit of sense, that. That anyway. is fantastic. Will Smith was approached to play mm. Neo, but turned down the offer in order to star in Wild Wild West in 1999. He later admitted that, at the time, he was not mature enough as an actor, and that if given the role, he would have messed it up. He had no regrets saying that Keanu was brilliant as Neo. I, I've seen interviews about Will Smith saying this, and he's got so such grace and warmth about it. And another thing he points out was, and if I had got the role of Neo, they would have had to give the role of Morpheus to Val Kilmer, because you couldn't have two black men on screen at any one time. And to be honest with you, I love Keanu Reeves in it, but for me, it's Lawrence Fishburne's performance that really makes it, that really holds it together. Yeah, yeah. I love Keanu Reeves, I really do. I mm -hmm. wouldn't say he's the greatest actor on the planet, but he does no. certain characters brilliantly. Yeah. Whereas Lawrence yeah. Fishburne, obviously a lot more experience than a lot. The distinction I would make is I'd say that Keanu Reeves is a movie star and Lawrence Fishburne is an actor, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, you know, no, I do get a, that, actually, yeah. It's a yeah. subtle distinction, but it's there. In the first 45 minutes of the film, Neo has 80 lines. 44 of these lines are questions, just over half his total dialogue, averaging at roughly one question per minute. <laughs> I just imagined him just being like, what, what, what? <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Numerous sets of identical twins were cast as extras in the woman in red scene, in which Morpheus takes Neo through a computer simulation of the Matrix to create the illusion of a repeating program. For example, the tall man with slick back hair and sunglasses in the opening shot is seen a few seconds later as a police officer writing a parking ticket. Oh, wow. So apparently that... they just got loads of twins in just mm. to make it look as if it's like repeating pieces of code. Like Mouse has used the same code and did a copy and paste several times. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah. Yeah, Basically, that's yeah. brilliant. For Keanu Reeves' scenes set in the Matrix at the start of the film, his costumes were deliberately shabbing and ill-fitting to suggest Thomas Anderson's feeling of not quite fitting into the world. The actors and actresses of the film were required to be able to understand and explain the Matrix. Simulacra and simulation was required reading for most of the principal cast and crew. Sorry, that's a key postmodern text, isn't it? I believe so, yeah, and also mm. it is featured in the film. That, that scene where um, that guy comes to get that piece of code off him and he calls yeah. him his own personal Jesus Christ. He hides all of his stuff in a copy of it. Oh, fantastic. Basically, it's the idea that a, a simulation or a copy of something can become sort of more real to us than the original thing, if you like. It's a, it's a key thing. You can find references to it in Blade Runner and Matrix and all manner of other texts. Absolutely applies to this film as well. Yeah. Keanu Reeves stated that the Wachowskis had him read Simulacra and Simulation, Out of Control and Evolutionary Psychology, even before they opened up the script. And eventually, he was able to explain all the philosophical nuances involved 
involved. Carrie-Anne Moss commented that she had difficulty with this process. I can imagine so. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Awesome. Now, that, that is brilliant, though. I think that's a key thing that we've learned with filmmaking is you've got to make sure that everybody's on the same journey as you. Everybody is singing from the same hymn sheet and they understand what you're after. I mean, I have never set quite a hefty required reading for any of my films, but that's a really nice touch. Yeah, no, I like the fact that they wanted everyone to be on the same page, almost literally, and I think that's <laughs> yeah. quite interesting. <laughs> um, in the combat training programme, before Neo starts his furious attacks on Morpheus, he rubs his nose with his thumb and finger, similar to a mannerism of Bruce Lee before he attacks his opponents. The move was improvised by Reeves. In the early stages of developing what was to become the famous bullet time sequence, visual effects supervisor John Gator and director of photography Bill Pope constructed many gimbals and dollies in the hope of creating the effect the old-fashioned way. The original dolly they created for the camera would be led around the action at a tremendous speed, but after many failed tests and many broken dollies, they adopted for computer graphics, which meant writing an entirely new program for the effect. However, the bullet time sequence does use one very old-fashioned technique, still mm. photography. Yeah. I remember watching a documentary about the way they did it, and they've got all those cameras that just go, go around in a big arc around. I was just fascinated by it. That's amazing. Oh, thank you for those, Phil. I really appreciated them. No now, problem. to talk to us about Plato's Cave and all things philosophical, I am very excited to introduce our special guest, who I had such a great time talking to earlier this week. Hi, I'm Natalie Austin, a teacher from Kidderminster. I'm a psychology teacher by training, but kind of fell into teachers teaching religious studies eight years ago. I'm also a keen amateur philosopher and a Matrix fangirl. Natalie, it is an absolute privilege to finally have you on the podcast. I'm so excited too. <laughs> awesome, source. So, what elements of philosophy can we find in the Matrix trilogy? For many people, myself included, the Matrix was kind of their introduction to philosophy. Um, so, one of the key philosophical questions at the heart of at least the first Matrix film is what is reality? I'm probably not alone in having come out of the first movie thinking, firstly, it is absolutely imperative that I buy a leather trench coat. But secondly, how can I know I'm not in the Matrix right now? Now, that's not exactly an original thought, but if anyone has ever had that thought, well, how do I know that I'm not in the Matrix right now? Congratulations, you are a philosopher, because that, exactly, <laughs> that is exactly what philosophers do. So the Wachowskis, they're not the first to pose this question, but you can argue the way in which they did pose it was, it was, it was the coolest and the most accessible. You know, classical philosophy is... You know, there's not enough gun battles, to be honest. I in there. could not agree more. Yeah, you know, Plato's Republic, no fight scenes at all. Yeah, I mean, um, Aristotle's chase scenes are brilliant, but really that's all he's got. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> so how do you know that you are not in the Matrix, Giles? That is a very good question, because, as you know, I already have the leather trench coats, so, <laughs> I, in fact, I'm, if anything, I'm more inclined to think that I am in the Matrix. Yeah, but there, there is no way around mm -hmm. it, really. Like, you, there is nothing you can do to prove that you're not in the Matrix. Matrix. I mean, I've sort of made peace with it a long time ago because I think if this is the Matrix, if I am in, I'm in some sort of simulation, well, I can't get out of it. And it's quite a nice simulation, so just enjoy it, I suppose. I was just going to say we accept the reality that's put in front of us. Exactly. This idea of, you know, the, uh, the world being some sort of illusion, it's not a new idea. It wasn't invented in the 70s. Um, probably the most famous person that came up with this idea was René Descartes back in the 1630s. Um, Descartes was a philosopher, mathematician, scientist, mm -hmm. just general all-around badass. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it was, it was awesome. <laughs> I think that um, says more about your relationship with philosophy than anything else. 
philosophers are like they're warriors of the mind um, <laughs> and, and he argued that the only thing that you can be certain of is that your mind exists because everything else could be illusion but if there is a mind that is thinking about whether things are an illusion then you know that that mind exists and he was summed up in his famous phrase cogito ergo sum I think therefore I am so you know nothing else might be real but you know at least one thing that your mind exists your body might not exist but your mind exists okay and so that was kind of like the most famous uh, version of that thought another question for you are you familiar with Plato's allegory of the cave I am but I always love to hear you tell it <laughs> so Plato was a Greek philosopher he lived about 400 years BC and this is probably one of his most famous works anyone who knows the word Plato may know about the uh, the allegory of the cave mm-hmm. so in this famous allegory he described a group of prisoners who had lived their entire lives chained up in a cave facing a wall these people spend their lives watching the shadows moving on the wall these are shadows cast by people and objects moving past the entrance of the cave now for the people in the cave the shadows are all they know and to them the shadows are their reality um, they have no idea that there is a world outside uh, one day a prisoner escapes from the cave and he is able for the first time in his life to perceive true reality you might start here seeing some similarities here to the matrix mm-hmm. he can see that the shapes that he had thought were his reality are just shadows cast by the real world and now he understands the real world he would be unable to return to the cave and be content with the world of shadows also if this prisoner were then to go back into the cave and try to explain the real world to the prisoner still inside they would find his descriptions incomprehensible i mean how do you explain sunlight to someone who's lived in darkness uh, plato argues that once the prisoner has seen the real world they would feel compelled to rescue others from the cave and to bring them out into the light but some of the prisoners inside the cave may fight and resist anyone who tries to take them from the cave to the, to them the shadows are their reality and they would resist someone trying to take them away from that so plato originally intended this allegory to be a representing the role of the philosopher so the philosopher is the person who is able to escape from the cave and see the real world of, of pure fact and pure logic obviously the hero of plato's story is going to be a philosopher because he was the philosopher <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's clear that the wachowskis were really heavily influenced by this allegory and how they wrote the matrix so mm-hmm. um to the people still hooked up to the matrix they're the prisoners tied up in the cave yeah. and the matrix itself is the shadows on the wall that people perceive to be reality and morpheus alludes to this he says it's the world that's been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth and much like plato's prisoner you cannot have the truth explained to you because morpheus says you have to see it for yourself um, and once people are freed from the matrix they are then confronted with the world outside and they, and they understand they understand the truth of the life they thought they'd understood um, and also in the world of the matrix those who've been unplugged the ones who you know have left the cave they work to liberate the people still inside just like the prisoner is compelled to help those still inside the cave and like the prisoners who resist freedom um, Morpheus explains to Neo and I'm quoting him here um, you have to understand most of these people are not ready to be unplugged and many of them are so inured so hopelessly dependent on the system they will fight to protect it and we also see in Cypher the situation of the prisoner who is unable to return to life in the cave. So Cypher has left the cave, he's seen the real world, he took the red pill, and now he's cursed with that knowledge. And the only way you could return to a happy cave existence is to have all your knowledge of the real world erased. Mm-hmm. The, the Wachowskis are clearly philosophy nerds. Mm. And personally, I think they've done an absolutely brilliant job of making quite complicated philosophical ideas very accessible. And, you know, with gun battles and bullet time. Yeah. So literal books have been written about it. How does the film tackle other religions? I mean, obviously there are parallels 
Christianity, but I'm going to leave that to you guys to discuss. Much appreciated. Um, yeah, but the Wachowskis were actually also heavily influenced by Eastern religions. I don't just mean, you know, like digital dojos and um, and stuff like that, but the religions of uh, Hinduism and Buddhism particularly. And especially in the second and third films, there are lots of references to sort of Hindu and Buddhist beliefs. In the second film, we are told by the architect uh, that Zion has been destroyed and rebuilt many times. Now, in Hinduism, you're probably familiar with the concept of reincarnation, that you live, uh, you're born, you live, you die, and then your soul is reincarnated into another body, and you're born, you Mm -hmm. live, you die again. Many Hindus also believe that a similar cycle um, happens to the universe, that we are actually living in a cycle of universes that are created, exist, and then are destroyed, and then recreated. So each universe starts off harmonious, but then gradually declines to the point where it needs to be renewed. And there are three gods who are responsible for this cycle, and they're referred to as the Trimurti. There's uh, Brahma, who's the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer. One academic article I read suggested that these three gods are actually represented in the Matrix by the Indian family that are waiting at the train station in the last film, um, because their names and the descriptions of the characters do seem to map onto the Trimurti. So, for example, the dad, I think, is called Rama, and Rama is the name of an avatar, an incarnation of Vishnu, and Vishnu being one of the Trimurti. So it's a really mm. interesting little sort of nod to it there. I mean, again, mm. there's so many references to Hinduism and Buddhism. I think there's even one of the ships is called the Brahma. So there's there's an awful lot of Hinduism in there. They they really went to the religion and philosophy pick and mix when they were yeah. around. <laughs> <laughs> that, do you <laughs> know what? That is a wonderful phrase because that's how I'd sum it up. They've just they, they mm. pick bits over here and there and everywhere. I love it so much as a result. And that's why we religious studies teachers absolutely love the Matrix too. There's always a good clip you can show to the students. <laughs> that is fantastic. Uh, my final question: What would you say has been the lasting cultural impact of the matrix the matrix has had a huge huge impact on popular culture every single action film in the early noughties had a scene where they use bullet time <laughs> so I've got, i even saw it in harvester advert once um, <laughs> but uh you know it's had a big impact on on our language as well one particular uh thing that i really wanted to point out is really really amuses me how the alt-right have hijacked this term red pill how do you describe the alt-right the alt-right are groups who they hold deeply misogynistic racist white supremacist ideology they believe that you know women and liberal politics and minorities are somehow oppressing men and oppressing white people so it's a very strange Mm -hmm. ideology they have taken the phrase red pill and they have sort of hijacked that term and they have made it to mean people who are able to see the truth so once you hold once you come to the realization that um you know the poor white man is being oppressed by women and minorities so once you've woken up to the truth you have taken the red pill which is absolutely idiotic but anyway so what i find really amusing about the fact that the alt-right have chosen that particular term from this particular movie 
is that they've kind of missed the point. One popular no. interpretation... Yeah, I know. Who'd have thought it? They're otherwise such reasonable people. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one popular interpretation of The Matrix is that it can be read as an allegory for the experience of being transgender. Now, I'm not trans myself, so I did a bit of research into how trans people themselves interpret Neo's journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, uh, Neo, uh, right from the beginning of the film, he rejects his given identity of Mr Anderson and he embraces his chosen identity of Neo. Morpheus talks to Neo about his feeling of having a splinter in his mind, a a feeling that just something isn't quite right, and that is a feeling that a lot of trans people have said that they can appreciate in their own lives, of of that feeling before they sort of realise that they are transgender, that something isn't right. Agent Smith talks to Neo about his dual lives and how one has a future and the other does not. That's my um, terrible impression there. But, I mean, there's so many more examples it's really not a massive leap to see the matrix as a trans allegory because i don't know if people are aware lana and lily wachowski themselves are trans women Mm -hmm. and so it's not out the realm of possibility that they wrote the trans allegory deliberately Uh, they were men when they directed the film yeah they identified publicly as men at the time Mm -hmm. but were you know i don't know their their story but i imagine very likely that that they did that deliberately i'd imagine so when the alt-right, a group famously opposed to trans rights and feminism, adopt the language of the Matrix by talking about taking the red pill, they are actually speaking the progressive language of two trans women. And for some reason, that makes me super happy. <laughs> that is fantastic. Natalie, I am so, so pleased we managed to get you on the podcast at some point. You, this is this has been one of the mes- most enjoyable interviews we've had. Uh, I, I mean, also- I could keep on going, but you probably, you know, have... <laughs> Save it for your own philosophy podcast. Yeah. Um, Coming soon. <laughs> I should also point out that Natalie is also our waffle editor for this podcast, so she's got the unenviable task of listening to herself <laughs> later on and working out which bits are total waffle. Yeah. Awesome source. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Uh, that was Natalie's interview. Phil, what did you think? I wish I had the pleasure of her company much more often so I could talk more about The Matrix and philosophy because mm. she seems to have done her reading. It was Absolutely. Amazing. Natalie is one of the most knowledgeable people I know and it was an absolute joy to speak to her about something that she is clearly passionate about. Oh, absolutely. With, like, Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which I had to look up, but it makes sense. The yeah. bit at the end, when talking about um, Rama and Vishnu and the people in the train station, would never have known that in a million years and I feel I feel better for knowing it definitely and the thing that blew me away the most in this was the idea that the matrix is an allegory for being trans and the fact and that I, those alt-right people took it the irony is beautiful what's interesting is if you look Smith tends to refer to Neo almost exclusively as Mr. Anderson which is the name that he was given not the name that he chose effectively what he's doing there is he's dead naming him have you heard the process of dead naming where somebody won't accept the name that the other person is trying to identify as. Exactly. When somebody has sort of changed gender and someone else keeps referring to them as their old name and it's a way of trying to put somebody back in their box. At least that's particularly what Smith is doing there. And I just thought, when you see it like that for the first time, it just puts an extra layer to it. And that's the thing I love about this film. You can read it as a Messiah movie for cyberpunks. You can read it as a trans allegory. You can read it as a meditation on fate versus free will. And I just never get 
get bored of finding out more about it. Yeah. It's so mm. rich and deeper you dig, the more you find every single time, and it's just beautiful. It's something I can yeah. watch over and over and over and over and over. And I have. Yeah, definitely. Now it's time for Finding the Faith in the Film. Da na 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 na! No! Hey! I've got a backup singer! Firstly, let's set out some expectations. The Matrix franchise is three films, at least two computer games, and various short films. If we tried to be comprehensive in our analysis, this podcast would be 15 hours long. These are just my observations. If I've missed anything out, I expect you, the listener, to tell us about them. There is so much in The Matrix that it would be reductive to call it a Christian film. It is not an allegory, although it has allegorical elements. It can be read in many different ways, and we'd encourage you to find out more. But this is a God in Film podcast, so we're going to be looking at it through the prism of a Messiah movie for cyberpunks. (laughs) We're also not going to be talking about the critical merits of the films. Those are the kind of arguments that have sustained geeks for years. All we'll say is that this is one of the richest text that cinema has offered us. It is the Hamlet of Hollywood. I do like that. Yeah, I was quite chuffing myself with that one. Nice bit of alliteration. <laughs> fair play, fair play. Let's go through the, the obvious stuff. I'm going to point out some of the names, and if you can, can understand the significance, then we'll, we'll move straight on. If you're not sure about anything, you let me know and explain them, okay? Okay. Obviously, one of the main characters is called Trinity. What can you tell us, Phil? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's the Trinity. What about Zion? Have you ever come across that term? I know of it. I mm-hmm. think it might be a prophet of some some kind but i'm not sure less of a prophet and more of a place so in old testament times zion was a synonym for jerusalem the idea about a holy city and it sort of in the New Testament, it went on to transform its meaning to become something like a heavenly Jerusalem. As Zion right. could be seen in some context as almost a reference to heaven. It's a place where God rules and everything is as it should be. Oh, I see. I think maybe what I got mixed up with was Sion. Yeah, as in, like, last as in the Sion. last Sion. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. There are things that we saw in the 20th century about the Zionist movement, and that became about the idea of having Jewish people return to the Holy Land. That is a whole other topic, and we will absolutely not be getting into that discussion. Here. What about the Nebuchadnezzar? I remember looking this up years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the name. I think it's the name of a king. You are absolutely right. Well done. It is yes! the name of a Babylon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so pleased myself. Nebuchadnezzar II was a Babylonian king. He conquered Jerusalem. At least if I'm thinking of the right king. He took the Jewish people out of Israel and made them slaves. And uh, he's featured quite heavily in the book of Daniel. I right. don't know if you're familiar with that one at all. I'm not. But the book, The Matrix of Philosophy, states that the Nebuchadnezzar's name is symbolically important. As the ancient king has a dream he can't remember but keeps searching for an answer. So this is obviously similar to how Neo continues used to search for an answer to his vague but positions questions about the matrix oh yeah that makes sense like being late Um, at night on his computer and that exactly and i knew the i knew the nebuchadnezzar was significant but i couldn't pin down why exactly so i really enjoyed that the nebuchadnezzar's nameplate you see it briefly in the first film it's obviously the nebuchadnezzar's a hover ship and the nameplate we see briefly in the film is mark 3 number 11 made in the usa year 2069 you could read that as mark chapter 3 verse 11 Mm. in which case it writes an unclean spirit when they saw him fell down before him and cried thou art the son of god now in some ways morpheus parallels a gospel writer because he's delivering news of the savior and uh, and that's uh, that i thought was really interesting as well that's, that's a know? nice touch it's a really nice touch morpheus is often referred to as like a john the baptist figure because he believes long before jesus comes along john actually is jesus cousin he baptizes him it's not an exact parallel but morpheus sort of baptizes neo into the into the world as it is if you like so yeah. it's a nice 
It's a nice parallel with that in that sense. Also, did you notice Niobe in Reloaded and Revolutions? Her ship, the smaller one, the one that Neo flies to the Machine City, is called the Logos. Logos is Greek for the word. The word Logos came to be used to mean the good news, so as in passing on the good news, passing on the I gospel. See. Right. So much so that there's actually a Christian organization called Operation Mobilization who have a ship called the Logos that goes around delivering the gospel and doing some humanitarian work around the world. It's really interesting. I like that. Let's go on to the, the meaty stuff. Cool. The central conceit about taking a red pill or a blue pill effectively is a really nice way to sum up the idea of making a choice. Hmm. There's that really nice line, unfortunately no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Similarly, I can't make you believe in God and Jesus and everything else. I can only show you the way. And yeah. I thought that was really nice because it links in this idea of choice and Christianity sort of coming together quite a lot. And we've talked about the importance of choice before. Again, like I've said a couple of times, like you've got to you've got to be motivated by your own choice. You've got to exactly. make that decision before you can actually be believing what you want to do. You've got to have made the exactly. decision first. Absolutely. And I want to talk briefly about the idea of like different models of church so phil what does church mean to you church for me can mean two different things really like one of it, Go for it. is literally sort of like the building but also i think church has got a lot to do with a community a group of people all believe in the same thing all following the same beliefs and ideals and guidelines you've hit the nail on the head there in some ways so in modern society the church can be seen as different things so to its critics it's this massive monolithic institution bordering on the edge of irrelevance to its congregation it can be our main source of community and belonging and to the world at large it can serve as a fantastic humanitarian organization yeah. similarly the church is referred to in different ways in the bible in colossians they use the metaphor of a body in ephesians it's referred to as the bride of christ because the idea is we're going to be with christ forever i've always thought it's a slightly clumsy metaphor for a bloke it's a little bit of an odd one to get your head around mm. but then again <laughs> <laughs> There's women in church who have to refer to being brothers in Christ, which is always a bit clunky. In 1 Timothy, it's referred to as a family. But in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5, we're referred to as an army. I'll give you the quote. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's a lot more organized and slightly a lot more aggressive than I consider mm. Christians. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, and this is the point I'm getting to, is that there are different models of Christianity. There are yeah. different ways of looking at it. Some take it quite extreme down that army aspect by things like the Salvation Army, where they all have sort of uniforms and ranks and all the rest of it. And whilst I wouldn't go that far, the metaphor works quite nicely, that we're all people working towards something. I tend to think of my church as my forward operating base. It's where I've been stationed for this time in my life you know I like that that's a nice little my, my senior pastor is a bit like my captain you'll sort of do what they do what they ask you to do sometimes very flipping grudgingly I hasten to add but you'll still you still sort of do it you know it's your duty and exactly and if you think about it the way the military works in the matrix is kind of a similar thing it's this sort of model where people are recruited one by one They're, it's based not on merit but belief each crew operates slightly differently with varying degrees of deference to their captains yeah. and the goal is absolutely the same the salvation
salvation of humanity. And whilst I like that now, at 16 years old, I absolutely loved that. That sense of being part of an army working towards something has always yeah. been very appealing. And the important thing is to make sure that if you do think of your church as an army, then you have to be very clear what the enemy is and that it's not people. Uh, how do I even put this? The, the enemy is, it's like denouncing Christ, basically. Yeah. Like, like yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of the enemy. It's not literally kind of like, you don't believe in Christ, so I'm going to hit you. you know, it's yeah, not, it's exactly. Not that. And that is the problem we've had to deal with, that people have misinterpreted what God is, is after. He's not interested in you killing people for him. It doesn't get him anywhere, you know? No, it doesn't get anyone anywhere. So Exactly. <laughs> so if we fast forward to the end of the first Matrix film, we've got Neo's death and resurrection, where Neo dies in the corridor, and it's traumatic. He clearly has nightmares about it afterwards, and heading up to that point, there's no clue that he would survive it. After this, though, he has powers unlike anything he's had before. And this is kind of reminiscent of Jesus after his resurrection. There's several references in the Gospels of Jesus being different. He tells Mary Magdalene at one point, don't touch me. And obviously he's able to appear to people at different places who are miles apart and and all the rest of it. And obviously the last thing that happens is that Jesus ascends into heaven. This has parallels with Neo flying at the end of the Matrix. So I just thought that was a really nice parallel there. I always thought when I heard that Jesus was ascending into heaven, I genuinely always thought he just kind of went straight into the air and I was just like wow that's amazing I bet that makes the commute really easy you know I'm going to also jump massively ahead to the end of Revolutions it's when Neo goes to the Machine City yeah. and can you remember what he does when he gets there he talks to the leader of the Machine City and he talks his name is Deus Ex Machina the baby face no, thing really I didn't know there was a name for that that name doesn't appear in the script does it oh, sorry I, I don't appear think on it screen. appears in the film no I, I think it came from like concept art but I think in okay. the script it was probably named that way I'll have to look uh, that up okay. so when Neo goes into the machine city he meets the for want of a better word leader of the machines and it's the giant baby in the spiky glowing yes. ball thing and crucially he asks for peace now this is an absolute game changer it's not what we're expecting and it's not what we've had any clues it's, it's going to happen also it's not the sort of thing that happens traditionally in a big budget blockbuster mm. the, the protagonist walks up to the enemy's lair and asks for peace but this was really fascinating because it made me think completely differently about the machines. In this story, in this allegory, if you like, the machines aren't demons. The machines in themselves aren't inherently evil. The machines are the Romans. So Mm. to give you an idea, there was a lot of expectations that a Messiah would come and liberate the people of Israel. And whenever they were conquered by either the Babylonians or by the Romans or anything, the idea was that this Messiah would come and he would save them in a military overthrow and that's what people were expecting Jesus to be and what I find fascinating is Neo is obviously a warrior he's obviously a very powerful being but the crucial thing is that he makes peace with the the machines and I found that amazing it's this idea that both Neo and Jesus they don't operate out of hatred at no point can I remember Neo saying he hates the machines and I found it, it fascinating because he doesn't defeat an enemy so much as he changes the entire paradigm of reality and I thought you could apply 
apply that to both Neo and to Jesus. And I thought that's fascinating. That is amazing. Just while you no, say that, I just wanted to add a little extra layer. In the Animatrix, mm-hmm. specifically, yes. the sort of backstory between the humans and the machines in a very sort of diluted fashion is that the humans created the machines, subjugated the machines, and yeah. then the machines decided, you know what, actually, I'm done with this. They basically started a war, blacked out the sky because they were all dependent on solar power. What, if Yeah, if you remember, the humans black out the sky because the machines are dependent on solar power yes, at that that's, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why they basically just go, right, well, we'll use you as batteries then. Yeah. It's a weird parallel because the less conquerors, they're more sort of oppressed beings that were trying to overthrow their sort of like oppressors. Yeah. This whole parallel, the idea that the machines aren't inherently evil, that people can work together with them. Yeah. As we see with the Oracle, who's obviously a machine program in herself. And it just made me think about how it's more powerful to defend something you love than to destroy something you hate. And that has been sticking with me for most of the day. Um, yeah. And obviously the last thing he does is, as he's dying, he starts to form a cross, and, and you just get the, the very clear sort of one line, two lines, as he starts yeah. to usher in an area of peace. So in broad strokes, the Matrix is about finding faith. Reloaded is about losing it, and Revolutions is about finding that faith again and having it confirmed. What's interesting for me is that Morpheus, the moment when he sees his ship explode at the end of Reload, he, he says, I had dreamed a dream, but now that dream is gone for me. And you have to appreciate as a maybe 19 year old at this point when you've only seen The Matrix as being a messiah movie for cyberpunks that ending was absolutely heartbreaking it for me it is one of the most intense endings up there with Empire Strikes Back you know Mm. if you think about it the big twist in Empire is that Darth Vader's his dad the big twist in Reloaded is that the one and the entire concept of the one is another form of control and there's nothing to hope for whatsoever and we should all just give up now which I feel is a bigger twist. I remember all the, the critical reception of that. Mm. And everyone was just like, you what? <laughs> like, yeah. How can you possibly take this away from us? You know. Yeah, so it's it's not so much that it's a bad story, it's more that just it hits you so hard. And as yeah. a result, it can hit you really hard to then lift you up later on for revolutions. He's absolutely bereft at that point. He, he feels like everything he's believed is a lie. But the thing I find interesting is he keeps on fighting. He doesn't just sort of give up. And it, for me, it felt like a reminder, a universal reminder for everyone that we should keep on fighting, even when it seems hopeless. And at this particular time in history, that has never been more prevalent in my in my lifetime. I completely agree. There are evil forces out there, and they're mm-hmm. among us, and they are us, and we've got to have the strength together, whether you are religious or not, to just help out the common person. Absolutely. That is the end of our Finding the Faith in the Film section. So I always knew mm-hmm. that there was a lot of sort of religious parallels in this film and mm-hmm. in the franchise as a whole it's nice to get a little bit of extra seasoning added on top in terms of context you know like I quite yeah. enjoy that nice to kind of get into the nitty gritty on it on some parts absolutely it, you know? yeah yeah I, I find it fascinating I really do really nice to do a, a deep dive speaking of deep dives we had a review came in from Pete Last on Apple Podcasts oh yeah, who said Giles and Phil do a really good job in this entertaining well paced and thought provoking podcast too many th- people thinking about the links between theology and culture overcomplicate things to such an extent 
accident that they often disappear up their own extremities. <laughs> These two are clearly good mates, and the discussions they have are interesting and down to earth. Give it a listen, which Aww. absolutely made me smile. Thank you so much. That really made my day when I read that. In terms of shameless plug, we are still looking for volunteers to be part of our test audience for our film Reset. Yep. So if you like sci-fi with a heart and you've got 20 minutes to watch a film and fill out a questionnaire, please do get in contact with us via all the usual social channels, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever works for you. Carry a pigeon with a scroll. Uh, the scrolls work really well. The last thing to say is that this is the last episode of this series, mainly because I've got to go off and be a dad. Hey! My son is... <laughs> I'm so happy for you, Giles. My son is due to arrive in a few weeks' time, and I am reliably informed that babies can be quite time-consuming. We originally planned this as a limited series of 10 episodes, but we've had such a good response that we hope at some point in the future to do a second series. So, if you'd like to hear more, or have any suggestions about what episodes you'd like us to do, please give us a shout-out on the socials. All that's left to say is, on behalf of myself and Phil, a big thank you to everyone who has been a guest on the show, every person who has left us a review, and every person who has listened to one or more of our episodes. We really appreciate you guys. We're really enjoying doing this during lockdown and it's given me something to look forward to and it's helped me to engage my brain at a time when you could just be idle. So Absolutely. I've got to say thank you to Giles specifically. So Thanks for having me. And I couldn't have done this without you. Anyway, that's enough of that. Thank you guys and we'll see you sometime soon. Bye. See you in the future. Bye-bye. Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Fact-checking by Christina Stanard Good. Waffle editing by Natalie Austin. Tech support from Claire Goff and our intern is George Allen. God in Film is a Dash production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star. In which case, take the ship and head up to broadcast depth. Meet Phil at the rendezvous point and rant at him there, but beware, the tunnels are crawling with sentinels, so have your EMP ready to go. Good luck. <laughs>